Amen. And good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I was a little concerned because it's spring break and everything. Spring forward day, which is absolutely the worst day of the entire year. Somebody say amen. Okay, now look, uh, whoever came up with that idea is terrible, uh, and, and it's just, it's just a, a really bad uh, situation. But hey, some of you came today. That's awesome. Way to overcome. Way to overcome. And I know people are traveling, people are out of town and going on spring break vacations and, and, and trying to decide how they're going to survive with their kids at home all week uh, when normally they're at school, okay? So uh, I get it, but it's good to, good to see you. Thanks for coming today. And again, a lot of people are traveling and out of town and, and uh, slept in or whatever they did, but uh, I'm glad you're here. And we're going to continue in our series uh, on the... Um, the last words of Jesus to his disciples, we call it the Upper Room Discourse. It's John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's all one message in one setting just after Jesus has completed uh, the Last Supper with his disciples. He sets down with them and he begins to teach them uh, the things that will be very important to them immediately in the next few hours as Jesus is going to be betrayed, as Jesus is going to be denied, as Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross, and then of course Jesus is going to rise again from the dead in just a few days from this very moment that he is speaking about right now. And so this is, this is an extraordinary uh, passage of scripture. For those of you that have been here for a while, we started studying the life of Jesus Christ in the fall of 2020. So we've been doing this for almost three years and we're coming to an end, um, and, and I'm, I've got mixed emotions about that. I've enjoyed this very much. I almost want to just go back to the beginning and start all over again, because really, uh, the only thing worth talking about at church is Jesus, amen? And, and, and it's been a wonderful journey, and I pray that it's been enlightening to you as well as instructive, and uh, so I'm, I'm really thrilled about this. Now, 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 the rest of these sermons in John 13 through 17 have been productive. Encouraging, and this one is too, but there's a strong message here as well uh, from Jesus just after he has taught his disciples what it means to have an ongoing relationship with him after he leaves, like his physical presence is leaving. He's going to leave the Holy Spirit with us, and that is going to create this vine and branch relationship. We get to be in a personal relationship with God just like a branch is in a relationship with a vine. All the sustenance, all the, the need that we have comes through the vine, both for our salvation and our spiritual existence. Now we come to the end of John 15. He's what it means to have a relationship with him. In the middle of John chapter 15, he's told us what it's like to have a relationship with other believers, which is basically love. And now at the end of John chapter 15, he's going to tell us what our relationship is going to be with a hostile world. So look beginning in John 15 verse 18. Look at this encouraging word. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no great, not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If it had not come, excuse me, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hate both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, maintaining faith in a cancel culture. Maintaining faith in a cancel culture. Now, you live in a cancel culture, meaning a cancel culture is when the large volume of media, news outlets, social media influencers speak out against and isolate against themselves everybody who does not line up and agree exactly with where their mainstream culture is. Now, the obvious problem as a Christian in the 21st century, is that mainstream American culture is in absolute direct opposition to God and God's word. So you automatically, as a Christian, just from believing what you believe, are automatically canceled out by the culture as irrelevant and wrong and divisive and a cultural cancer. And nothing has more demonstrated this in recent days than the cancel culture's following of the subject of sexuality and transgenderism. And we've seen this subject literally infiltrate our society in ways that we probably never imagined would. One of the most incredibly hot-button topics of the day today is about transgender athletes participating in uh, sports, particularly... Uh, male athletes who are all of a sudden girls, let me rephrase that, think they are all of a sudden girls, are now allowed to participate in Division I athletics. This became incredibly popular just a few years ago, or I think it was last year, when, when Leah Thomas, the self-proclaimed woman athlete, Six foot four, 230 pound male athlete chose to be a woman and participated in uh, Division I finals of the swimming competition. And this became an incredibly divisive uh, situation. And Leah Thomas uh, now is a Division I athlete, or at least was, and has aspirations to swim for the United States of America in the Olympics. Uh, The most prominent picture of this that you have seen is Leah Thomas on the podium receiving accolades. And she's standing right beside of a swimmer from the University of Kentucky whose name is Riley Gaines. Riley Gaines happens to be a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and, and, and in the recent months following this particular outrage from our society was she began to really speak into uh, the culture and what it meant. And she said that the experiences that she shared were absolutely terrifying. For instance, of going into a woman's swimming locker room and having to unclothe yourself in front of a six foot four man who also unclothed himself. And the, and, the, and the uncomfortableness that these women had to experience because this guy and this culture has told this man that it's okay for him to also proclaim to be a woman. Since then, Riley Gaines has actually begun to speak out on this and has uh, developed a bit of a ministry, if you will, uh, of speaking and talking about this culturally. She was recently invited uh, to speak at a public library in Hendersonville, Tennessee, as a book was released on this subject, and they had a, a kind of a talk, if you will, at the public library. And this is how crazy our world is. The librarians and the workers at the librarians, in protest to this woman speaking the basic fundamental truth that we've all believed since the beginning of time, that there is such a thing as a biological male and there is such a thing as a biological female. When they began to speak at this library, literally the librarians cranked up their music so loud that the conversation between Riley and the people that came to listen to her was unintelligible. And it took them over 45 minutes to convince the librarians to turn their music down. And they said in response to Riley, the reason we're turning this music up so loud is because you are hurting our emotional psyche to talk like this in our library. This is the world that you live in. Now you laugh it off, and we actually kind of think it's funny, but there's not anything funny about this. This is crazy. And, folks, and the sad thing about this whole thing is that there is a woke, if you will, side to the church that is trying to accommodate in some ways what they say or believe or how they interact with this culture. I've got a word to the woke church this morning, okay? Go back to sleep. This is no time for the church to capitulate and, and give in to a culture that is absolutely in every way antagonistic toward and anti-God, folks. And here's the problem. The problem is that we tend to think that somehow if we soften our message or change our tactics or include certain people in the church when historically they could never be historically included in the church, and somehow that's going to make our message a little bit more palpable to a culture around us. Folks, that is absolutely not what's going to happen at all. When you change your message to include a group of people that should not be included, then your message is not the same. And the church is not the same. Folks, listen, the church was never designed by God ever to fit into the culture around them. We were designed to be a light in dark places. And that sometimes is not a very easy message. Now, fortunately for us, Jesus addressed this in the first century. And would you believe that the original cancel culture in, America, in the world were the Jews that canceled out Jesus when they crucified him for his message against their original religious establishment. Now this is what's being addressed in John chapter number 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus is trying to tell these disciples, look, this is how this needs to work. You need to stay close to me. You need to love one another. And now he's bridging. John 15 and 16 is all about what they are getting ready to immediately experience. And i got to understand, when you, when you read through John 15 and 16, there is an immediate context. 
The immediate context is that this very night, Jesus is going to leave from this sermon. He's going to finish it in John 17. In John chapter 18, he's going to walk with his disciples out of the upper room. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray with his disciples. And in that garden, Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. And the disciples are going to scatter in fear. The very next day, Jesus is going to be crucified. And and literally, Jesus is going to get canceled out of that culture because uh, because of his teaching and because of who he was. And the disciples are going to have to face the reality that because they hated Jesus and crucified him and canceled him, they are also going to cancel you. And boy, did they ever. Eleven out of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death. They canceled them all. And Jesus is telling them, My impending death, my impending crucifixion is going to frighten some of you. It is going to scare some of you. But in John 15 through 16, Jesus gives them the encouragement they need to stand strong. Not to capitulate, not to blend in, not to fit in the culture, but how to stand strong, how to stand firm. And he finishes in John 16 verse 33 with these words, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Church, listen, we are on the the winning side today. And yet between the win, ultimately when Jesus comes again, and now a culture that hates Christianity, hates the church, hates the Bible, and hates our Savior, how do we function right here and right now? Well, let me give you three words from Jesus today if I could. Number one, you need to embrace the certainty of hostility. Embrace the certainty of hostility. This is what really takes place in chapter 15, verses 18 down through the end of the chapter. Now, now you may notice this when I was reading that section, which is the only section that I read for sake of time. Did you notice all the times the word if is used in that section? I circled them all out of my notes. It's six times. Six times from verse 18 down through the end of chapter number 15, the word if is used. And the word if is used, and it really is the word since. Since they hate me, they also hate you. And it's all these if statements that really draw out to us what a cancel culture really is all about. He says, uh, you can believe anything, just keep it to yourself. You can do anything as long as it fits into our system. You can be anything as long as it doesn't isolate and alienate anybody, right? And what do you say? He said, he said, if I had not spoken these words, nothing would have happened. If I had not done the works that I did, this would not be a problem. And if you did not follow me and you did not say and believe the things that I have said and done, nothing would be wrong with you. Folks, that's the very definition of the culture around us right now. That, that, hey, your Christianity is fine. Your beliefs are fine. Your word is fine. But just keep it to yourself. The minute you go public, the minute you are engaged in in, in, in evangelism or cultural discussion or a a debate at work or amongst friends and neighbors or on Facebook, you have just entered into this hostile culture. What do we know? What do we know about the certainty of hostility? Here's what we know. We know that the world around us is fine with us as long as we keep it quiet. But there's a real problem with that, isn't there? Because last time I checked, the church is not supposed to be being quiet about anything. 
We are to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to be a, a witness of the things that Jesus said. We are to be infiltrating and influencing our culture. There is no real Christianity that is silent. So not only do you see that this certainty of hostility comes because we have a message to proclaim while the world wants to keep us silent, but the second thing you see is the promise of hostility is rooted in Scripture. Did you see what he says here? He says it twice in these same verses. He says, uh, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. There he's quoting, I believe, something he said in Luke's gospel to his disciples. And then look at the end, look at verse 25. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. That's in Psalm 69 and verse 4. What is, what is Christ doing here? He's basically saying from the Old Testament till right up till just the other day, I've been telling you guys, you're not going to be appreciated by the world. Now, I'm here to tell you, church, not that I enjoy one word that I'm saying right now, but if you are an authentic Christian, you are a Bible-believing Christian, you are a witnessing disciple of Jesus Christ, do not expect to be welcomed with open arms and to be patted on the back and praised for what you believe. Expect that people are going to hate what you believe and hate who you believe. And i got to be honest with you, including myself. We are probably the softest generation of Christians that has ever lived on the face of this planet. And let me just, let me zero in on what I mean by our, O-U-R. I mean American Christianity. I mean soft-seated, air-conditioned building, free American Christianity. I'm talking about private school, Christian school where my kids go, comfortable Christianity. I'm talking about no challenge Christianity. Where when, I mean, we even, the thought of having opposition is frightening to us when there are brothers and sisters right now in Iraq and China and Indonesia that are literally giving their lives and being in prison day after day after day for the cause of Jesus Christ when we've barely had somebody even bump into us on Facebook occasionally about something that we believe. We're soft. We're soft. We're not engaging the culture. We're not being the church. We're being our cultural, comfortable Christianity, and it's having devastating results on our children, on our grandchildren, and there is a faith that is rising that is not an authentic faith. Why? Because we do not want the trouble that comes from being authentic and outspoken about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I saw a video about two years ago, a friend of mine that I used to work for was over in uh, Asia, and they were having a pastoral conference for missionaries in Asia. In fact, they just had the same conference just last week, 10 thousand missionaries and Christian workers from all over Asia, from China, from uh, Taiwan, from the Philippines, from uh, uh, Indonesia, and, and, and what we would call the 1040 window, that, that, that longitude and latitude window where, where Christianity is the most hostile, uh, is received with more hostility than any other place in the world. At this particular meeting, there was a pastor there from Egypt who was there. And this pastor from Egypt when he became a Christian and started preaching, he was taken out of his church and beaten and imprisoned. They stole his 
belongings, they burned his house, and they took his business away. And somehow, ultimately, got out of prison and for his own life, fled Egypt to another country to start over again. And it was still a Middle Eastern country. And that man made it to that conference and was introduced to some American pastors to which, after hearing his story, they were so compelled by his story that they decided to interview him on camera. They blurred out his face, talked to him through an interpreter because he spoke Arabic, a Christian pastor in the Middle East speaking Arabic with scars on his body, with with jail time in his history, lost his house, his family's abandoned him, and they're talking to him about this story. And my friend that's a pastor looked at this man and said, well, in America, the Christians here uh, are not used to that. They're not as outspoken, and they're they're not in trouble for their faith. And that man responded with this question. Listen very carefully. Are you sure they're Christians? Are you sure they're Christians? God help us, folks. Do you think it's going to get any easier to be a Christian in the 21st century? Do you think this is getting better? Do you think that if Donald Trump wins the next election, somehow something's going to turn around the right way? Are you kidding me? There is no political hope. There is no governor or president that's going to make this better. It's only King Jesus, friend, and it's only those who are loyal to him. And friend, i got to tell you, to be honest with you, sometimes I think to myself, you know what, it might just actually be a good thing if our little cultural Christianity got disrupted and and every once in a while we felt a little bit of a sting of what it means. And what if we lost our tax-exempt status because our world hates Christianity? You know what I say? We march on. That's what we do. I don't give to this church for tax refunds or tax benefits. I give because I give to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not in it for a 501c3. I'm not in it for government protection. I'm in it for Jesus. And if we lost it all, we ought to be gladly willing to lose it all for the Lord Jesus Christ because he gave it all for us. So embrace the certainty of hostility. Number two, quickly, continue to minister in the Spirit. All throughout John 15 and 16, there's this message of the Holy Spirit. Look at the last verse of verse number, chapter 15, if you will. Watch this. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The call to continue to minister and witness is very prevalent in this text. Meaning, although the Great Commission has not yet been given... It will be given. And Jesus is going to die. And Jesus is going to be buried. Jesus is going to rise again the third day. And then after that, when Jesus ascends, he's going to tell his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Guys, in all four gospels and the book of Acts, between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus tells his disciples repeatedly, you're going to go preach the gospel. Now, folks, listen. Sometimes I feel like i got to remind us, and sometimes I feel like, as, as, as sad as I feel like I have to remind a people who call ourselves Christians, our job is to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Th- folks, this is not fine print. This is not a footnote. This is not like Listen to the commercial about the new medicine and then blow through all the side effects. 
This is not the ad on television that then the guy talks 90 miles an hour about all the rules and exceptions at the end that are written in so small script there's no way in the world you could ever read it. I am suggesting to you today that what Jesus says we do in a hostile culture is witness. Proclaim the gospel. Preach Jesus. And I'm not talking about what I'm doing right now. I'm talking about you are witnesses of these things. You. Which bears into our heart and mind, wow, are we witnesses of these things? This morning I was able to sit down with James back here and we were able to talk. And he's been new. We were able to sit down and talk. And he, he gave that profession of faith today in Christ and told me, yes, I just have accepted that. He's going to get baptized next Sunday. This is what we do. We keep on preaching Jesus. Asante has two more that are getting baptized next week because he's won them to Jesus Christ. Folks, this is what we do. We preach the gospel. We bear witness of these things. The best way to infiltrate a culture, the best way to turn this thing around, is not try to be like the culture. It is to preach Jesus into the culture. It's your job. But here's the catch, I think. Here's the catch. Sometimes we get so angry at the culture that we think we are supposed to witness in our own power because of our own frustration. But remember, Jesus said, you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses. That's why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so prevalent in John 16. In fact, in John 16, verses 8 through 11. Again, I'm running out of time here, so I'm just kind of summarizing. In verses, in, in verses 8 through 11, he is saying to them, and when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Who is the one that can convince the world of their sin? The Holy Spirit. Who is the one that can convince the world of the righteousness that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ? Only the Holy Spirit. Who is the one who can convince the world that there is a judgment that is to come and you will only avoid that through the person of Jesus Christ? Only the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing, guys. We are not culture warriors here. Guys, we've got to get this right. I am sorry. And look, if you, get, you might be like very politically persuaded. And I'm not trying to, I, I have no, I, I, look, I will tell you. That I think when I vote, I should vote as a Christian. Meaning I should vote as I believe the Bible would, would help me understand what people believe because they're guiding our country. So I'm going to think through social, financial, other issues. And I'm going to say, what does the Bible say about that? And yes, it's going to lead me generally to a group of people that I believe best represent that, to a platform that best represents that. But friend, I am not out here. My goal in life is not to be a culture warrior. My goal in life is not to turn America Republican. My goal in life is not to get everybody to vote for Donald Trump or anybody like that. My goal in life is not to try to get everybody to conform to what I think is true. My goal in life is to preach the Lord Jesus Christ while trusting the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Listen, you get out on Facebook and you write hate mail to everybody in the world, that it's not going to change this culture. Go to some rally, give all your money to some, uh, you know, political party. That's fine if you really, if that's what you really want to do. I got a friend out in uh, Arizona, and he he has made a connection with a very wealthy woman who is a, a multi multi millionaire. And, and up to this point, before she found Christ, she had spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in the political arena, trying to stir up conservative politics. And now that she's found Christ, I love what her pastor's doing. Let's take that money and let's give it the mission. 
mission and let's give it to the gospel and let's repurpose this because our hope it's not in politics friend listen you've got to believe what I'm saying this morning you've got to believe that the Holy Spirit can empower his church to make a difference in the world and that is our only hope it takes somebody with the spirit to preach the gospel in the spirit to make a difference by the spirit in the world and I'm challenging you folks it's time for us to take this up We've got some immediate opportunities right here that I think you should consider yourselves taking advantage of. We're trying to saturate this entire community, 5,000 homes right around this community, with invitations to Easter and to our new Spanish church. That's one small way you can get involved. It may not mean everything, but it means something. Like D.L. Moody was, was, was criticized one time for how he does evangelism. You say, preacher, I don't like the way you do evangelism. Fine. I'm just trying to throw as many poles out in the water as I can. The way I look at it is, if I got more lines in the water, I got more chance to catch fish. So I'm going to go hit some doors. I'm going to go preach the gospel at the basketball uh, after church. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt here in a couple weeks and bring hundreds of kids onto our church property. We're going to give away backpacks. We're going to go to public schools. We're going to do everything that we can to try to preach the gospel. I'm just telling you, well, it's just time for you to jump in. I know you've got a business, I know you've got a career, I know you've got school, I know you've got other stuff that's occupied. Let me ask you a question. What if your time right now is being occupied of telling people about Jesus, trying to keep people out of hell? Hmm. 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 Folks, don't expect anytime soon, I'm going to stop telling you what I'm saying right now. It is our God-given responsibility to preach Jesus Christ to this world. And that's what he tells us to do. The third thing is this. I love this. At the end of the day, endure, number three, endure because Jesus has overcome. We, we preach the gospel, we expect hostility, and then what we do? We endure because Jesus has overcome. Now, 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 again, in verses 5 of chapter 6 down through basically verses 15 of chapter 6, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in witnessing. But I want to pick up the story in verse number 16. And I got a little subheading uh, in the text here. It says, sorrow is going to turn into joy. Now, I want you to watch this. I love this. Just like in the first few verses, the word if is repeated six times. Starting in verse 16, see if you can pick up another phrase that's repeated multiple times. You ready? Verse 16. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Verse 17. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this he is saying? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. Verse 19. Now when Jesus knew what they desired to ask of him, he answered and said, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while. And you will not see me. And again, a little while. And you will see me. Somebody help me up here. Here's what Jesus wants you to know about your trouble. The hostility that you're going to face in this society. It's just here for a little while. I love this. Now, guys, specifically what Jesus is talking about. Let's see if you think I don't know what I'm talking about. Specifically, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. A little while I'm not going to be with you, then a little while we'll be back with you. 
He's talking about the resurrection and the crucifixion immediately. He's saying, guys, here in a little while, I'm going to die, but it's just going to be for a little while. How many of you are glad Jesus only stayed dead for just a little while? Somebody help me up here. It was just a little while. He was dead, but it wasn't temporary. He was in a borrowed tomb. Why? He was in a borrowed tomb because he didn't plan on staying there very long. It was borrowed. He was only going to use it for three days. It was just a little while. And then he said, I'm going to come back alive, and in a little while I'll be back with you. And so he's saying there, obviously, that the pressure you're about to receive is going to be temporary. We need to remember that our light affliction is but for a moment. We need to remember in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed. Verse 20, I love this. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will Weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then he gives this illustration. What is the crucifixion going to be like for you? Like a woman in childbearing pain. Lord, help. Now look. Could there be a more graphic and violent picture of what goes on in this world? Look, I had to recover from Brent's birth for like a week, guys. I mean, I just all that was happening, I mean, it was just like system overload here, okay? And girls, listen, God bless your heart. Oh, my word. What happens to bring a child into this world is insanity. But then Jesus says this. Yeah, that's, what, that's what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, you guys are going to be like a woman in labor, you're going to run and you're going to hide and you're going to be scared and you're not going to be able to sleep and you're going to freak out. You're going to go crazy, screaming at people. <laughs> you're going to go wild. It's going to be crazy. And that's exactly, that's exactly what Peter did, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Peter did? Peter stood outside of the crucifixion by a fire and started acting like a crazy woman that was given birth. It's true. I'm not saying any of y'all cussed. But I'm saying it, I mean... I don't think anybody blame me if you did. <laughs> that was a joke, Pharisees, okay? That was a joke. Isn't that what Peter did? Flipped. The rest of them ran. Thomas starts acting crazy, starts saying crazy stuff. I mean, they come back after the resurrection. He's so crazy. He's like, I don't even believe it. Y'all are crazy. I'm going to have to stick my finger in the side. I'm going to put my hand in there. Just crazy. Why? Because their world got flipped upside down at the crucifixion. But then he says, it's going to be turned into sorrow. Your sorrow is going to be turned into joy because three days later I'm going to rise again from the dead. And he says, then it's good. That, what that's going to be like is when the baby finally comes out and all of a sudden the mom is smiling and holding a baby. And everything's like all of a sudden in like two seconds, everything flipped. All that craziness just stopped. And all of a sudden mom's happy. And there's joy. And there's excitement. Why? Because a new baby's here. He said, that's what it's like. That's what the crucifixion and the resurrection is going to be like. But here's the catch. The resurrection, guys, was not just a temporary patch on temporary sorrow. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the death nail to the devil. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate overcoming of all things. And the rest of what Jesus says in John 16 culminates in the statement in chapter 16, verse 33, when he says, Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And that's going to carry you through the rest of your life. Hey, the resurrection didn't just patch up what happened at the crucifixion. The resurrection ignited a fire in the true disciples of Jesus Christ and 
made them fearless, it turned cowards into lions. And they transformed the world. Why? Because Jesus is alive, friend. And we're on the right side of this story. That's why Romans 8 says you're more than overcomers through Jesus Christ. This is why uh, the Bible says in Revelation 2 and 3, every single church in Revelation 2 and 3, as messed up as some of them were, you're an overcomer when it's all said and done. Why is that? Because Revelation chapter 5 says, worthy is the Lamb. Because you overcame all things by your blood, and you have conquered. We overcome. When the story ends, we know Jesus wins. The church today, if we're not careful, we're like the armies of Israel. When they had a weak and defeated leader, they hid behind trees and shook in their sandals at the screams of Goliath. But then the real king came. You know what the last word of Ruth is? You know what the last word? Y'all better help me. You want to know what the last word of the book of Ruth is? The last word. Ready? David. It's the last word of the book of Ruth. You want to know what happens in the book of Ruth? You know, in the Bible, okay, y'all help me here. Y'all going to learn something. I'm telling you, I'm going to flip a chair over this. in, In the book of Judges... The book of Judges is the worst time in Israel's history prior to the divided kingdom. Everything has gone down. They've completely rejected God. They, 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 they rejected the theocracy. They, they God was their king and they dethroned him. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. The king, the Lord Jesus, was on the throne and they didn't want him. So what they do? They started acting like a bunch of crazy people. Right? And so you read this story. And Have you guys read the book of Judges recently? When you get to it in your Bible reading program, like put a clothespin on your nose. Be ready to take a shower. Kind of crazy stuff that's happening. You know what happens in the very last chapter of the book of Judges? The Benjamites, a whole tribe of Israel, has just nearly been wiped out. The only reason the whole tribe wasn't wiped out is because some of them hit up on a plateau where nobody could get to them. There's like 200 guys left. Everybody's dead. You want to know why they died? Because they gang raped a woman. And then her husband cut her up in the 12 pieces and mailed her out to the 12 tribes. This is not Fox News. This is in the Bible. This is crazy. And so Israel rises up and they're like, we're going to go kill Benjamites. And half of them, like 200 of them hide. And you want to know what the conclusion of the book of Judges is? The Benjamites, in order to save their nation or their, their, their tribe, go to a celebration, a religious festival, where 200 virgins are there celebrating about God. And literally, they kidnap the girls and marry them. That's, that's the book of Judges. That's how it ends. You know what the last verse of the book of Judges is? In those days there was no king in Israel, everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. You know what the first verse of Ruth says? In the days of Judges. In the days of Judges. So you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. But really Ruth actually happens during the book of Judges. Y'all follow me? And what does the, what does the book of Ruth teach us? 
God's always got an answer. And who was the answer? Boaz. And who is Boaz? The kinsman redeemer. The one that will rescue the broken. The one that will rescue the widows. The one that will rescue those who are in debt and in distress. It's Boaz. And what does Boaz do? He takes, he takes Ruth. She had no business being there. Just like you and I don't have any business being in Christ today. He took her into his family. And he gets her as his wife. And at the very end, he has a child. And that child has a child. And that child has a child. And his name is David. And who is David? Well, in Judges, there's no king in Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 11, there's a, 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 a whacked king in Israel. But you know what God said in 1 Samuel chapter 13? I've taken the kingdom away from Saul, and I've given it to a man after my own heart. Who's that man? That man is David. David is God's king. David is the one in 2 Samuel chapter number 7 that God said to him, your kingdom will have no end. And who's going to set ultimate, who's going to set ultimately on David's throne? King Jesus, friend, the one who's setting there right now so when the book of Ruth ends it is David then when David comes on the scene and Saul is jacked up shaking in his sandals hiding in front of Goliath what happens oh David comes off of his daddy's farm right he comes to deliver bread and cheese to his brothers and he stands up and everybody's scared out of their mind and David says what's wrong with you guys I took off a head of a bear and I took out a lion I'll go out there and take out this giant right here and right now guess what he does buddy he sure enough does without Saul's misplaced armor. He goes out there with a stone and a sling because a stone and a sling in the hand of a shepherd boy is worth more value than a 200 pound sword in the hand of a giant. Yep. Amen. And he takes out Goliath you want to know what happens right after that? All of a sudden, the army rises up, and they go knock out the Philistines. Why? Because it's real easy to march. It's real easy to fight. It's real easy to win when you got a king like David. And I'm telling you, friend, it's real easy to stand. It's real easy to preach. It's real easy to go when you've got a king like Jesus. There's no reason for us to be afraid and fearful and shaking in our boots and acting like we ain't got no sense. We got Jesus, the king. And he's the conqueror. And because he is the conqueror, we conquer with him. Let's pray. God, to you we are grateful because you are our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. You rule, you reign. And our prayer is that we would be bold. and That we would not give in. That we would not change our message, adapt our lifestyles to fit into a culture that hates us. They hate you, they hate us. God, help us to be bold. Help us to realize we are conquerors through Jesus. And help this church to proclaim his gospel until he returns. How many of you say, preacher, I needed that help today? I'm telling you, I needed to be reminded we're on the right side of this. God being my help, I want to be that witness. I don't want to be a timid, fearful soldier. I want to be who God wants me to be. I want to proclaim Christ. God spoke to me. Would you lift your hand up and say, that's me, man. God spoke to me. I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage you today. Let's come and let's pray about this. Guys, we have got to be bold. There's going to be an opportunity this week in your life that's going to require boldness. And your tendency is going to be to be bashful and God's going to want you to be bold. How many people would be affected by the gospel if his church would be bold? 
I want to encourage you to stand to your feet right now as we close this service. And I want to invite you to... Folks, sometimes you just got to step out and say, man, Lord, I needed that. And Lord, I'm coming to you at this altar. I'm telling you that I believe that you are asking me to be bold. And Lord, I don't want to be a bashful Christian in a closet somewhere hoping the world will like me. There's no way that's going to work. There's no way that's going to work. That's not what God wants. And God, that you will help me and make me to be courageous. And that, Lord, even when I get hostility, I want to continue. God, speak to my heart. Embolden me. I want to ask a couple of our prayer team members to go back and pray with Mona. She's got surgery Thursday. Would some of our ladies go and pray with Mona? She's got surgery Thursday. Let's pray with her. Ask God to help and heal. Let's have a couple of our ladies pray with Rhonda. She's had some ongoing health issues. Could I have that? Maybe a couple other ladies come over here and pray with Miss Rhonda. She's on my left over here. Would you do that? That'd be great. <clears throat> While you're in prayer, would you pray for Kathy Geiger? She's gone again from church with ongoing health complications. God, make us bold. God, make us brave. Brace us for all that will come our way when we do. We love you, God. We, we pray for Hector and Cheryl as the upcoming Spanish church gets launched. That you will indeed bless them. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.